You're listening to a podcast from STI. My name is Gary Brooke and I'm uh, having a talk with Dr. Anne Sullivan discussing non-disclosure of HIV status in UK sexual health clinics, a pilot study to identify non-disclosure within a national unlinked anonymous seroprevalence survey. So Anne, would you like to briefly um, introduce yourself and then give me an outline of what you've uh, said in the paper? Yeah, sure. So um, I work as a HIV GU consultant at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London, and um, this paper has um, is really summarising some work we've done recently, looking at undiagnosed HIV infection in the UK. Um, Gary, as I'm sure you're aware, there are a lot of people who don't realise their status, and one of the ways that we determine or we, we arrive at those figures is by looking at several surveys, and one of these is the unlinked anonymous seroprevalence in GU clinics. And uh, as you know, that's where we take people presenting for syphilis blood tests and we anonymously uh, check uh, those or test those samples for HIV. And we can work out through some, some simple codes that are added to the uh, sample whether those people were known to be HIV positive, whether they had a test, a diagnostic test during that visit, or whether they left without a test in that, that they were offered a test and declined. And over the years, there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence or anecdotal stories that people who have HIV and attend one centre for their care will then go to another centre for their sexual health care and not tell the doctors at the sexual health clinic that they are HIV positive. And so they would appear incorrectly, as in they are already diagnosed on, on these, um, these seroprevalence surveys. And up to now, it's really only been anecdotal. There has been one paper out of Mortimer Market that... Um, was a questionnaire of their, pa- their HIV positive patients asking if they ever did this and there was um, a suggestion about 1% of patients admitted to doing it but there wasn't really any strong objective evidence so it just struck me one day that a lot of patients or we know in London there's about 80 to 90% of patients who are engaged in care actually on antiretroviral therapy and 80 to 90% of those will have an undetectable viral load so I just thought that if this was a significant phenomenon then we should be able to that the people who are non-disclosing are likely to be on treatment and likely to have an undetectable viral load. So we had all these samples that uh, were stored and we thought, well, if we tested them for um, an undetectable viral load, then that would suggest that they were on treatment. Um, there were some technical difficulties around the way the sample stored, so we thought it would be it's, it's sort of uh, more robust to do antiretroviral detection on these samples. So we were looking also at the uh, validity or the, the concurrence of having a negative viral load and detecting, um, the sam- and detecting antiretroviral therapy. And so what we found in, uh, in summary in, in the study was that a number of patients who um, were thought to be undiagnosed were in fact, did in fact have an undetectable viral load. Um, and those patients that uh, fell into that category where we had sufficient samples, and the numbers are very small, they all had um, antiretroviral therapy uh, detected. So they were in effect non-disclosing. Okay, and so just go delve into the figures a bit further. Sure. So of the people who had this anonymous testing of their syphilis serology, what proportion of people who tested positive were using your surrogate markers almost certainly people who were on treatment or, or knew their HIV status? Okay, so this was just done in one clinic. So we had um, 28 samples that had not been previously diagnosed where we had sufficient information to look at. Um, 10 had a diagnostic test, and so 18 
of the patients were in theory not tested and un, undisclosed. Yes, yeah, so when you said when you said 10 out of 10, you mean those 10 had had an HIV test at that at clinic that time, attendance? Yeah, so they yeah, were yeah, diagnosed. Yeah. Um, so they would contribute to the, un, the, the way we calculate the undiagnosed, but not yeah. leaving clinic diagnosed. And so the 18 that didn't have a diagnostic HIV test, 72% of those had an undetectable viral load. So that was 13 out of 18. And then we had enough sample for eight of those to test viral, uh, antiretrovirals, and they all had antiretrovirals in them. Yeah, so, so three quarters, roughly, mm. of all the patients um, who we thought did not know their HIV status actually did know their HIV yeah. status by the sounds of it. Um, that, that's pretty significant, isn't it? Isn't this sort of data used by the Health Protection Agency to estimate undiagnosed HIV in the community? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the important thing about the, the modelling that the HPA done, it does draw on a lot of sources. So there's six or seven um, data registries and surveillance, and there's three um, anonymous seroprevalence uh, surveys that feed into that. And I think the one thing I would say is that when they, die, when, they, when they use those calculations, what they actually do, the time point they're taking is when the patient walks into clinic. So the way they work out, so it's those, um, the 28 not previously diagnosed is... The one, the one that they use for the level of undiagnosed. So even though um, that will obviously be increased, the 72% of ours was of the ones not who left the clinic undiagnosed. So there is that slight difference there. But also um, the fact that I think also this was a very selected sample. So we actually screened all these to find people with an undetectable viral load and then looked for the drug. So it's a biased sample. And I think also quite importantly, I suspect that it will be significantly higher in certain clinics than in other clinics. Yeah, but, but, but even so, I mean, of the 28 who were undiagnosed um, coming in, you say some, yeah, something and like... 13 were undetectable. 13, yeah. yeah. Half, so, so, so it still leaves us with about half were, um, who otherwise would have been classified as undiagnosed actually did know the diagnosis. So I suppose if you, if you extrapolate this to other settings, it could, in theory, have a major impact on our understanding of what is undiagnosed HIV out there. And clearly, you've you've said that they don't use this sort of data, but possibly it make a big difference. So on the on the basis of this, which um, this is a short report because it is just checked, checking, you know, did, does this phenomenon occur and are these tests valid to use? Um, the team at the HPA have gone ahead and tested uh, a significant larger number of samples from a larger number of clinics um, and that was some of that data was presented at BASH earlier uh, last year and it's uh, in the process of being written up but um, they have done some initial remodeling using the new data not our data because obviously it was it was too biased and it looks like there is an impact obviously but it's a very small impact and in real terms it probably it decreases the overall undiagnosed rate of MSM by less than one percent and even more even less in heterosexuals. Oh, okay, less than 1%. Uh, that, that, yeah, because uh, you, you see this data from our short report and you'd instantly think, and that's what we thought as well, we thought, oh dear, you know, we've got it completely wrong, but it's not the case at all. Oh, okay. Well, if, it, if it's less than 1%, uh, um, perhaps we can breathe a little more easily now and, and, and uh, realise that we're not working on, on false assumptions because clearly yes. the national strategies have been based around increasing HIV testing and so on, based on the presumed high rate of undiagnosed HIV. So I think with Emma's new data, 
and she has presented this, so I, I can say, um, her the rate of undiagnosed uh, HIV and MSM going to a GU clinic was around 9%, the left undiagnosed, and it drops to about 7 but the overall undiagnosed prevalence went um, only down by about 0.7%. Oh, okay. So what, what is it with these patients? Why, why are they not disclosing their HIV status, do you think? Um, well, I don't think we actually know, but I think there's a lot of uh, fairly sensible, we could guess, a lot of uh, reasons. And I think probably the main one is around the idea that people who are coming to sexual health clinic, uh, by definition, the majority feel they have put themselves at risk. And so they're the, therefore the implication is if they have HIV, they shouldn't be putting themselves at sexual risk. And so they choose, they don't want to go to the same centres for the HIV and GU care. And when they go to a GU clinic, I suppose some of them either don't want to be judged or don't want to be put through to have various discussions with various members of staff that, that they don't feel that they want to access. I think the interesting thing will be now that we people are accepting more if you're on treatment and have an undetectable viral load, um, whether that is still going to have the same impact. So I think it will be interesting to see if, if that changes over time. Yeah, I think, what weren't some of your patients heterosexuals? Uh, is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. because, yeah. I, I, I mean, clearly I'm sure you've seen the same thing, but, but, but certainly what we see is that patients often come along to our clinic to have an HIV test, knowing they're HIV, uh, um, hoping that it's going to be negative and hoping that the last clinic they did the test at um, is is wrong or, or, or more, more so. I, mean, we, I certainly get a few patients who come along and, and um, believe that they've been cured through prayer and, and, uh, and therefore come along just to see if they're cured by doing another HIV test. Yes, no, I'm, I'm sure that does that does happen. Yeah, yeah, you know, it certainly does. Yeah, it, I suppose it depends on your population. I, we see it quite a lot, and 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 we we have quite a few patients who come along um, uh, and and have an HIV test um, and and are in de are in denial, so, so so to speak. I mean, clearly, this would only happen to the to the t in in the ten who diagnosed on the, on the day, because clearly if they're not going to have an HIV test, then, then that wouldn't, wouldn't occur. And, but And, I mean, that will impact significantly on, or it will have an impact on the, the rate as well. And I think furthermore about the different populations, I, I suspect um, at certain clinics, say, for example, ours and um, maybe Mortal Market, various places like that, I think the clientele are more likely to sh be willing to, either one, they're more mobile, or they're more willing to appreciate they can access care in multiple sites and be, be, be a bit more savvy about the way they use services than other mm. groups who feel once they're in one clinic that's where they have to go and they don't appreciate and certainly outside of London the choice of being able to go to another sexual health clinic is going to be more limited so you'd have to make much more of an effort to go to a clinic and not disclose. So they haven't disclosed, does that make a difference you think uh, as far as their sexual health care is concerned? Well, I mean, I think holistically it does. I'm not sure you could say that if someone came in with gonorrhea, the investigations would still be the same, the results would still be the same, the treatment would still be the same, the care for that STI would hopefully still be the same. I suppose you miss an opportunity to provide, to make sure that patient has all the correct information, any other interventions you might offer. So the more holistic care, I'm sure, would, would be less, but... I don't think you could argue that they're actually, for most sexually transmitted infections it would make a lot of difference. Obviously with some things like herpes and recurrent herpes and stuff it would. But, um, 
Yeah, I'm not sure. Certainly, certainly from a public health and making issues and making sure they were aware about disclosure, legal uh, situations, PEP, all that kind of stuff. Obviously, it does. Yeah. Um, yeah. The unlinked anonymous seroprevalence study has um, moved over to urine testing now, hasn't it? Um, or except it's not. Uh, it's well, the gum non study now. Um, that I suppose is going to make it much more difficult to repeat the um, work that you, that you did um, because we don't have these, um, um, you know, the, these anonymized um, serum samples left over like like we used to do when we, the unlinked anonymous serum prevalence study was 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 done on blood. So. Well, um, uh, no, well, actually, we obviously we can't do the viral load in in urine, but we are. Um, the HPA are now trying to validate, in the middle of validating urine samples for, for the drug levels. So ideally, and now we'll obviously be just limiting to those people who either an, aren't HIV positive or aren't having a diagnostic HIV test at the time. So yeah. in hopefully it will be it will be better because we'll be able to monitor this prospectively. Well, that's uh, and true. I think the, I think the big advantage of it, in a funny way, is that now that we do have some evidence, we may feel more comfortable. Um, discussing it with patients who, you know, clearly are at risk, and we, we all see them clearly at risk, the decline in HIV test, and we can say in a non-judgmental or non-accusatory way, saying, oh, we, you know, we now have some data showing that we are, you know, that that this happens, and we understand why, and it would just be useful if, you know, to give them the opportunity to then, you know, disclose in clinic. Because I don't know about you, but I certainly would think when I come across people who aren't having a test, I do spend quite a lot of time trying to convince them to have a test. Yeah. And it may be that they're sitting there like just sort of going along with, with the conversation when, when really you could give them quite an easy way, you know, out of, you know, bringing up potentially reasons why you think they might not be telling you, giving them an easy sort of non-confrontational way of, of saying because you know, there is this evidence now that we know that it happens, whereas before it was all just surmising. Sure. And, but in fact, it, I think it has a further impact, doesn't it? It just suddenly caught, because you were one of the first um, centres to offer HIV testing in accident and emergency. Um, and I, I don't know about your figures, but certainly we've been, as you know, we've been doing it for about six months now. And, and, and approaching half of all the HIV positives we, we're getting in A&E are people who are not disclosing their HIV status in A&E, so they actually know they're positive, a positive test comes up, and then either, um, well, two things happen. Either we, we, we say we're doing HIV testing on everybody, and then at that point they'll reveal their HIV status, but in, certainly in some of the, quite a few of the patients where um, the HIV positive test is coming back from A&E, and then they're revealing that they knew their HIV yeah. their status. That's um that we've had a couple of those. I know Mary's who are also doing it. They had a few that actually had dropped out of care, and the yeah. approach to them got them uh, subsequent to most of their A and E care. They then revealed they were, and they got re-engaged in care. So it's actually quite a good way of finding people who are lost to follow up, who will you know continue to present to A and E as well. So it, it's interesting. We have had a couple who actually went all one patient who was admitted went through half his care till we got our A and E test back and approached him and he said, Oh no, I know I'm positive. Yeah, absolutely. So so certainly in in that circumstance the the, the, uh, the fact that the patient hasn't revealed their HIV status could have had much, much bigger consequences and I suppose all just yeah. got, just emphasizes that we've got to look for HIV where wherever we can find it. Absolutely, yeah. And and it probably 
more so, isn't it, because they're likely to present to A&E with an HIV-related condition. No, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So finally, you say it's been done on urine samples by HPA looking looking at this prospectively. Do you think there's any um, any mileage in other centres having a go at this sort of study as well independently? I'm not sure. I think once once the test is validated and we do it across the, the Gumanon centres and we get a feel for what the different patterns around the UK are like, I think then it would be very interesting to look at, at various types of clinics and um, various settings. And I think... It, because a lot of a lot of the um, the things we, we we take and we look and say, well, we should be doing an A and E or we should be doing it in um, you know AAU and, and and things like that. Then this could this could be another way of um, of looking at that. No, absolutely, I, uh, I think it's a brilliant study, Anne, and uh, so thanks for uh, talking to me about it. Uh, I think it, it really does emphasise that we've. Uh, got this fairly significant problem of uh, of people not revealing their HIV status, which you've got, as you said, to uh, overcome. So um, thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, so that, that was a uh, podcast on Anne Sullivan's uh, paper, Non-Disclosure of HIV Status in UK Sexual Health Clinics.